I'm Alan Kogan. Join me as I tour the country tasting different whiskeys and discussing the craft of distillation with local distillers, whiskey lovers, and even those who are new to the culture of spirits. Welcome to The Kogan Conversation. On this episode, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with Steve Bayshore, the master distiller behind the historical recreation of George Washington's rye. It was an honor to record on site at the distillery, so I hope you enjoyed this great episode. Cheers. Well, hey, Steve. Thanks for uh, coming on and letting me be in the distillery. appreciate it. Alan, good to have you here. It's wonderful to be able to chat with you about the history and whatever else we get into. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's really cool we get to be in, in the actual distillery itself, recording this podcast, talking to you about what you do in your craft. And I'm actually curious, like, I, I, I know you do this, but do you sometimes pinch yourself thinking like I'm working where George Washington and, and the people around him worked back in the 1700s? Every so often, yeah, you get that feeling because I've been here 16 years and I've been in historic preservation and historic interpretation for about 30. And you forget that it's not a normal job sure. in many ways. So with the grist mill next door, I started as a miller, you know, I'm a traditional miller too. So I remind myself I get to turn this mill on and then we get to do the creative things we do in here with spirits, both whiskey, of course, and brandy. Right, right. So... I guess just give a brief overview about what you do, who you are as a part of the George Washington's Mount Vernon Distillery Gristmill, where, where you all fit in on that, and how'd you get into this whole this space? It's, it's really interesting to me. Well, my official title is the Director of Historic Trades, so we have various departments at Mount Vernon that do uh, interpretation, greet guests, do tours, and our department is focused on living history. So we, we're a period clothing. We're not characters. We're not first-person interpreters, so we know it's the year 2023, but we dress the part and give tours of these spaces, also the farm, and we have blacksmiths at the blacksmith shop. But my focus over the last many years has been here at the Grist Mill and Distillery, telling the story of Washington's entrepreneurial side and what happened here on this particular farm at Mount Vernon in the 18th century, both from a practical historical point of view, but also about the people that lived and worked here sure. over the years. So I kind of came through it, you know, after a history degree, getting involved in public history, Got a job at a mill uh, when I was younger, and the miller happened to like me and wanted to teach me, which is how these things work sometimes. You know, he thought I had aptitude, and I was showing interest enough, and he trained me for three years like a traditional apprenticeship to run a water-powered mill. Sure. Which led to another museum, a historic site in Virginia, um, that had a mill where I ran that for 10 years. And it's a small community of millers, so people at Mount Vernon had, I think, known about me being out there, and they were restoring this site and they wanted to get somebody that knew how to handle the mill. Right. So for me, I kind of was fortunate that I got in here when this was being restored, the distillery. Right. Right. So I've been here. I mean, I lit the first fire under the still right over here back in 2007. That's why I see a light fire. I, that's, that's one of the things that I want to talk to you about is that this is, you're doing 18th century practices in distilling. Exactly. How did you get into learning about how that craft worked? Because obviously there's, there's, there's distilleries all over the place that, that do it in the modern way. Right. I know you were working on the, the, the mill. Do they just say, hey, Steve, you're great at this historical stuff. Come do this. Well, it kind of unfolded with the site development because the mill had been here uh, since 1932, the reconstruction of it. The ah. state did it. Mount Vernon took the site over and did a major restoration, you know, taking buying it from the state and, and wanted to make the mill operational again. So that had been running since 2002 before I was here. But that led to archaeology where we're sitting today because the original distillery had burned down in 1814. So. Mount Vernon did the research, archaeology, raised the funds, rebuilt it. And then so when I came here in January 07, the upstairs of this building was still having carpenters working. And we did the <laughs> first film shoot in here on the main floor. And so it was new to me. I mean, I drank whiskey. I enjoyed alcohol and beer and stuff, but I didn't know as deeply as what I know today from working in here. So 
The first opening event we did, the grand opening of the building in March 31st, 2007, I'm the gopher for Dave Pickerel, Jimmy Russell. Sure. Uh, the guys from Woodford, they were all here and you're kind of awestruck, you know, but yeah. you just go get that, pick the, get some, you know, you're doing whatever they needed you to do. Right. And so I kind of never realized it would develop as far as it did and as deep as it's done for me. So, you know, I'm fortunate, but it was kind of one of those quirks of life where you end up somewhere at the right time. Yeah. No kidding. That's, that's, that's awesome. I mean, I, you talked with a lot of enthusiasm about it. I'm sure this job doesn't suck. You wake up every morning, get to work at George Washington's distillery. Is it, what, what does it mean to you to be here? Well, there's a lot of layers to it. One is just, I like physical work. I like the work itself and I've learned a lot and making whiskey is a challenging, but exciting thing. But also to tell the stories of the past is what I've been doing for years. So it's, these stories are so deep here because we have such records and research and you can really get down into the depth of Washington, the man, the people that worked here, the farm manager, layers of stories and the visitors really eat that stuff up. So for me, telling the story is a big part of what's fun here is because you know, a lot of brands are out there that look for a cool marketing story and we never have to worry about <laughs> a cool marketing story because we have the primary source documentation of what took place here. No kidding. So I like imparting that in various ways to different types of groups and, and school groups too. We do a lot of educational groups. Sure, sure. And even some in the distillery where we can talk, concentrate on the story of science. Right. You know, fermentation, distillation, rather than, you know, we're not here to introduce a little kid into alcohol, but uh, that story of how this worked, who worked here is important to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So uh, I'm curious about the craft. The, the biggest difference between this distillery, which I guess would be considered a craft distillery nowadays, versus the big players is the, the process that you use. You're using the same process that George Washington would have been using in 1797 when he started. Right. How, how does that differ and how does that maybe make the whiskey either more, you know, tenuous to work with or I know it obviously affects distribution, the time it takes to make it. So maybe if you go into that a little bit. Yeah, well, what it is, is that really it's a, it's rudimentary in that it's hands-on, everything here. It's not pumps and pipes and, you know, uh, column stills. It's, we literally bucket hot water to cook mash in wooden barrels. So we cook and ferment in 120-gallon white oak hogsheads. And this is all based on what the records show, that they had 50 of these 120-gallon barrels in here. So... Uh, the boiler in the middle of the room would have had fresh water from the well. You know, that's heated up to a rolling boil and littering with wooden ladles and wooden buckets. We carry water over here. So it's a lot. You're right up in it. You know, if sure. you visit a modern distillery, fermentation's going on, cooking's going on. But stainless steel, we've all been to a lot of these tours where the equipment's really incredible. Mm -hmm. And it's there's a reason it's like that. I mean, every industry grows over time. And to make the number of gallons or the type of whiskey they make, that's very helpful. Here you're really, really rowing mash with a wooden rake, and we, you know, cook and ferment the three grains in there. Uh, and then we do have a modern yeast that we use. There's certain things we do because in this these this environment it's difficult. Sure. So we wanted to, you know, our consultants over the years have helped us pick certain things we utilize because we want it to kick off right and work right. 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 And then we have to bucket to these wood-fired stills behind me. You know, so you have five yeah. wood-fired copper pots. So it's really like, you know, a lot of people are you know, still using pots today, maybe pot column combination, but it's all batch distillation here. So, right. and it goes as a stripping run. We run all five stills as, as stripping stills. And then we have a gap day every so often and we collect that low wine in some tanks mm -hmm. and then it goes for a doubling. So it's just pattern of, of the ritual of how they did it through the centuries, which is really interesting for this place. And the room has its own terroir. You know, this, if some of our whiskey batches have slight 
smokiness to them. And people used to ask, is that peat? <laughs> These are wood-fired stills. You're carrying whiskey across the room. It's going to take on sometimes a little bit of that smoke. Of course. So it's very distinctive in here. And then uh, I think uh, the other thing is just how we make cuts. You know, it's a little different just because you have to really get right in and taste it and nose it and make sure you're making the right cuts, which, gonna, which was a learning curve for us like anybody. I was going to ask about the tails and the heads and, 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 and the hearts, how that worked. Is, is there any record of how that was worked back then? Did they just take everything? Well, no, they knew about that because we, we were fortunate after the fact, after being open a few years, you know, being in the history, history community, we, a lot of colleagues in England and other places and a gentleman in England who comes to make whiskey with us on occasion. He is a great researcher and he sent me a PDF of a 1768 distilling manual. Wow. And so what was cool is we looked through it and read through sections of it and you, you see, well, wow, you know, that's, that's, they knew about that and they knew about heads. They knew about making cuts. Right. And so I'm sure not, you know, in that time period, did everybody do it? Probably not. Sure. You know, just like any profession, there's some that are real good and some were probably a little bit just trying to get as much as they could, but they knew of it. And so they were practiced at it wow. and they knew what to keep and when to cut it off. Sure. Sure. What do you think there's more because the TLC that's given to this and the craft that actually is hands on, does that affect the quality of the whiskey, whether it be for better or for worse? Is there something that adds to the whiskey, whether it be, it's just the nostalgia. For me, I, I think the story is makes it taste better, but is yeah. there actually more quality to the actual spirit, you think? I think we've developed quality over time. Okay. You know, I could look back at the early batches, and I know that, you know, I jokingly call them the humility bottles, because <laughs> at the early runs, we were just happy, you know, we were working with Dave Pickerel at the time. Dave was great, and he was learning along the way with us, you know? Sure. And so there were things we did that we did back then that we don't do anymore, because it didn't lead to good flavor, so there's a learning curve. But also, I work with... You know, there's four or five key people that work with me in here that are really got good at running stills, but there's always new interpreters that work with trades that come in. So there's a learning curve and you can tell some days if I have a certain group on, I know I don't have to worry about what's going on on that side of the room. Right. Other days I have to mine things to make sure that that quality stays up. So there is kind of a human element to it, you know, because it's, it's not controlled by a computer panel. I've, I've got to like keep an eye on it and make sure. Right. They're feeding the fires right. They're watching certain things. Sure. The water levels in the building are right for cooling the condensers because that can cause an error. Right, right. Because if you have hot distillate, you're going to have problems. Sure. So that, that's been a big learning curve for us over time. So I think through the help of consultants, you know, Dave Pickerel first, uh, Lisa Wicker was our consultant for about six years and she was phenomenal at helping us improve fermentation. A lot of stuff we did in here led to great, better tasting whiskey. So it's been a nice learning curve and experience to work with different people and see how they do it. And so I think in the end, sometimes human error, human factors can make a point like anything. If we get, you know, certain rye varietals are going to be a little different, um, how the wood is pushed in here, um, and, and how you feed fires is important. Right. So that was a, a big one. Well, know? I was going to say, cause there's not really any way to, I mean, there's not electronic regulation of, of temperature. So how are you doing, how are you handling that? I'm sure that was a trial and error of how many stoves, stoking the fire and when to do it and when to take the wood out. Yeah, it was really a, a interesting thing because that's where our, our friend I mentioned who was so good at the, you know, the research and found that that early distilling manual was uh, his name's Mark Meltonville and Mark was the food historian at the Royal Palaces for about 25 years. Oh, that's cool. So he ran Henry VIII's kitchens at Hampton Court <laughs> Palace. So he came over to do some lectures here and the curator emailed me and said this English guy wants to come down there and see the mill. He was interested in the mill first. <laughs> Because he's into food. And so we talked and we, we kind of hit it off. And he goes, do you think I could come back sometime and help a little bit in the distillery? I said, sure. So 
the first time he was here was, gosh, over 10 years ago. And he says, you know, you're feeding these fires wrong <laughs> and you're causing temperature fluctuations inside the still sure. by the way you're laying the wood in. So he trained me and a few of my people and we have continued that method that Mark showed us. And he would run a still one day when it would drop like in two hours, it dropped two proof points. Yeesh. He's just even on the fire. And so you just realize he knew how to feed wood fires. And I think it goes back to these trades over the centuries. You know, people became proficient at certain tasks that achieved what they wanted in a kitchen or in a bakehouse or in, you know, making cheese or right. making whiskey. And so it wasn't that they knew all the science. They were well-trained by some master and they carried it on. So Mark has helped us with the fire and we've learned things of when to push it sure. and when to not. Like last time we ran in March, what's really interesting is when you're running, you're waiting for it to come over and down the line arm. Yeah. With these stills, we always touch the copper. You kind of feel that how it, where it is on the travel. And Mark showed me, feel right here because you can feel you can feel the heat, but keep your hand on it. It's not too hot. You can touch it. Don't keep your hand on too long. You can feel the bubbling. Wow. Which was really cool. He has such a touch. He goes, put your hand right here. <laughs> and it was like, there it is. I can feel what's going on. And so that's kind of that tactile part of it's really cool. Right. Wow. So I know, so you have an Englishman now. I know there's a Scotsman in, in the history of this distillery too. Yeah, key so player. James Anderson, correct? Right. So how, how has he helped build this out? And, and, and I mean, I didn't realize there was uh, so much international history with this, this place as well. Well, if you think of this region, I think you know some of the region, like Alexandria was really founded by Scots. Yeah, sure. And so the influence of the Scotch, Scottish folks in early America was huge in, in merchants and other trades. So Anderson leaves Inverkeething, Scotland in 1791 uh, with seven kids and his wife and comes to Virginia. And he lives in Fredericksburg for a while. He's been on the grounds up here because when he applies for the job, Washington puts an ad in the paper for a new farm manager in 1796. He really wants the job because he writes to George Washington says, I've been on your farms and I've been on, <laughs> uh, you know, he's kind of hit, I really could help you out. So he gets the job and Washington thinks he's the best man for the job because of experience in farming and livestock management and right. business. So he starts January, 1797. And within two to three weeks, he writes a letter to Washington who's just leaving Philadelphia. He's getting prepared to come home. And he says, you should really build a distillery behind your mill. You have all these crops. You have a merchant mill. Mm -hmm. I've done this back home. I can really make a profit for you. So it was really Anderson was the man with the idea to bring whiskey to Mount Vernon. So Washington at that time is 65 years old, though. So initially, he's not really sold on the idea. Right. I mean, if you read his letters and look at some of the other correspondence with friends, he's really looking to finally retire. Right. He's not thinking, I'll go home. I'll build a major business. So Anderson had to convince him. But what convinced Washington was the potential for profit. Sure. But being frugal, Washington didn't agree to build a new building here. He told Anderson, you can use the cooperage next to the mill to make whiskey in. Oh. And that's pretty typical of Washington with money. He's, he's careful. <laughs> so they put two stills in the cooperage in 1797, and they produced 600 gallons of whiskey. Of course, back then it was not aged. Right. So money goes comes right back after it goes into town in Alexandria. Sure. So Washington's pretty happy with the profit, but... Before he builds this new large building, he writes a friend named Colonel John Fitzgerald, who had been an aide-de-camp to him during the Revolutionary War. And Fitzgerald had interest in a rum distillery. So he knew the spirits business side, and he wrote back and said, if you make good whiskey, it'll sell in Alexandria. In fact, if you make twice that amount, it'll sell. Sure. It's a very good market. So based on that advice from a good friend, Washington told Anderson, go ahead, and they built this bigger distillery over the winter of 1797, 1798. But 
Basically, it's 75 feet by 33 feet stone with timber frame top, so mm. two level. It's got five copper pots, 210-gallon boiler, and 50 mash tons are listed in the building. So, you know, he's going, what we, you know, obviously not a farm distiller anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so it became a big production facility for him. I think a big surprise and profit for him at the end of his life. I know it, it, it's it's known as one of the largest distilleries of the time. Was it right. like close to 11,000 Yeah, in gallons? 1799, it was just a hair under 11,000. 1798, the first year it operated, they did 4,500 gallons. Mostly rye whiskey, but they did a little peach and apple brandy, small, few hundred gallons. And then the research that was done in the lead up to this, you know, because the original had burned down, mm -hmm. the Mount Vernon Archaeology Department, Preservation Department did 10 years of research. And they found one distillery in early America that had six stills, but on its records, it only made 8,000 gallons in one year. Now, I always say we don't know that there wasn't one bigger because all these records do not survive, but sure. I, I would put him in the top five probably of whiskey distilleries by volume in that time period. Do you think there was much to the, to the market back then of his name still? I mean, he had just been the president, the first president, super famous general yep. that Washington's now making and selling whiskey. Is that... Do you think that skewed it a little bit? I think there's no doubt people would have looked at that to mean integrity and quality. Sure. Uh, and if you were a merchant in Alexandria, and even if you weren't buying whiskey from George Washington's distillery, I am sure there were men that would have said, you know, this came from George Washington's distillery <laughs> just to sell it. <laughs> right. Because his name, we forget that time period that how revered he was really. And also we think of politicians today. And, you know, he was one man elected unanimously twice, and he had been the man that pulled him through the war. Right. And so most Americans look to him for, you know, as we should, you know, the founder, the key man at that time. Absolutely. And so I think that it certainly would have helped sales. And I think merchants would have utilized that knowledge. But, you know, back then you didn't market yourself like people do today. Right. And Washington, you know, didn't have to label his barrels or anything. It was simply was common whiskey that went into town for those folks living and working in Alexandria. Yep. Now, you made mention that the whiskey back then was not aged. And I know that's true. Um, I'm curious, was it was it enjoyed the same way that we enjoy whiskey today, or did they use it for something different? As far as what I've learned is that I think they would have drinking it pretty neat, but they might have, the owners, you know, you can imagine a tavern, a bunch of sailors in there, but they probably had a big, big, the barrels of it, and they would cut it. Okay. You know, I think it likely went to town at about 100 to 110 proof. Mm. Just from what my research, I may, maybe some batches that were stronger than that because they did triple distill some whiskey here. Sure, sure. Uh, but as far as the cocktails, you know, it takes time for that to develop. You know, rums, they had a lot of punches back then, so the rum punches were big. Yeah. But I haven't really seen any whiskey punches. You know, I've, I haven't dug deep into that. Sure. But I think there were probably some crude, co what we crudely call cocktails. Yeah. But I think most people were drinking, as I joke with visitors, for the desired effect, <laughs> not for a flavor profile. Well, yeah. uh, white dog whiskey will do that to you. Yeah, well, it'll catch up with you. <laughs> Did so? I know I, I never knew this, and I, I learned this recently um, doing a couple of tours uh, last year that how how big uh, rye is for Virginia's history. Everyone yeah. knows that you know bourbon and corn whiskey with Tennessee and Kentucky, you know, but no one thinks about rye being a Virginia spirit. Yeah, and I know now this is uh, George Washington's whiskey is now the spirit of the commonwealth yeah official state spirit of the commonwealth of virginia i yeah. wonder why is there is there a bigger rye crop here in, in the eastern part of the states in eastern and northern virginia from my research with you know grains and farms and milling you get toward richmond you see some wheat whiskey okay and a lot of corn whiskey you know yeah. wouldn't yet bourbon but that's you know you, they like they said at berkeley plantation in 1619 they distilled corn whiskey 
they try to say it was bourbon, but that, that really <laughs> classification, as you know, doesn't exist till about 1820, 21, that it shows up in New Orleans. Right. Uh, but it would have been corn whiskey and rye whiskey. And up here, from my research, Maryland's a big rye state. This part of Virginia, a lot of rye is grown. Sure. And then, you know, on the East Coast, Eastern Shore, it was, you know, people ask why rye. Well, part of it was it was cheap. It didn't go to the bread oven. You know, it wasn't some major thing we think of the complexity of the spirits industry today. Back then, it was more practical minded and there was a lot of rye being grown as part of crop rotation. So it's available. It's not hitting the oven. So people are going to distill it. Sure. And so I think that's one of the major reasons. And it just grows good in this region, you know. Now, Eastern Shore rye, one of the problems there with wheat and rye is you can get wild garlic growing in it. And you can read about mills in Baltimore in the 1820s where they literally had to take their millstones apart every day after grinding oh. and scrub those stones down because the oils from the wild garlic that's in there. So, you know, there's certain uh, struggles with, with you know, certain regions of Eastern Shore and around Baltimore. But I just think it was heavily grown and available and, and not, you know, and, and at a price that was reasonable. Right, right. I know, I know the mash bill for the, the modern iteration of Washington's whiskey is around 60% rye. Right. Did we have any reason to believe back then it was more than that? Is that more of a modern interpretation or do we have any record? That comes out of the ledger. It wasn't oh, written okay. down, but what the research team did, which was, you know, headed up by Dennis Pogue, who was head of preservation at the time, and Esther White, who was our archaeologist in their team, they went through the ledger entry by entry and they would notice that they would write down bushels of grain going from the mill into this building. And so they kept breaking those out, and they got that ratio of about 60% rye. Wow, okay. Uh, 30 to 35% corn, um, and the rest was malted barley. So it's all pulled from primary source ledger. Do any of those ingredients come from the farm, or did they back then? A lot of it came from the farm back then, but that was one of the dilemmas for Washington was even with 8,000 acre state, 3,200 acres in crop, this was a big distillery. Yeah. And I think... Well, he, early on, he realizes he can't grow enough rye to feed it. So in <laughs> the ledger, problem. he's buying some rye occasionally from right across the river in Maryland, which is kind of neat for us today as a, as a with rye whiskey. Maryland's a big rye state. Also, corn, he couldn't pull all his corn out of his fields. Corn was his second biggest crop next to wheat because he was a, growing wheat to manufacture flour for export out of his mill. Mm. That was his cash crop. But if he pulls all the corn into the distillery, he can't feed everybody that lives and works here. So right. the enslaved population received cornmeal every week from the mill on all the farms. So pretty soon he realizes he's not going to have enough grain. So he, he contracts with a relative that lived not too far for 500 barrels of corn a year for the distillery. And then the rye, he grows as much as he can, but again, often has to buy rye. Mm -hmm. And um, I think if you read between the lines, what was Washington sometime is not as effusive in certain topical regions. You know, you can see personal letters where you get the personality come through, but he, there's this great letter where he wrote a friend. He said, I've been induced by my farm manager to get into the whiskey business. <laughs> and I think that's just him grumbling a little bit about some of the inefficiencies of the grain because there's certain times of year you can see in the ledger that he's trading grain for barrels because the coopers can't keep up either. And occasionally, you know, bartering for other goods in here. So Washington liked the farms to break even at least. Right. You know, he had double entry accounting, so you can see credits and debits across each farm. But I think that probably bothered him a little bit. Sure. Wow. I, I know there were enslaved workers that were here at the distillery. Did they ever go on to, with their trade? I, that's one thing that separates George Washington from a lot of people in history is that a lot of his workers here on Mount Vernon actually were skilled workers and had a trade craft. Did they, after he passed away, go and make whiskey or continue that trade? Do you? No, as far as I've looked, and I have looked, you know, because yeah. that's been a point I wondered about a lot. 
Um, some of the enslaved men that worked here were dower slaves. And so there's really three groups of slaves at Mount Vernon. You have the enslaved men and women that Washington inherited and over time purchased when he was a younger man. And then he marries Martha Dandridge Custis, who's the wealthiest widow in Virginia. And so when her husband died, by the law back then, she got a third of that estate, which included enslaved people that came to Mount Vernon. So those are called dower slaves. Mm. And so the dower slaves legally were tied to his her first husband's estate. So sadly, the way the laws were then in the, in the, in the institution of slavery, it was terrible. Washington couldn't free those people when he freed 123 people in in his will. Right. So from the records we have and what I've done some research in Library of Congress and things that five of those men were dower slaves so that some went to Custis land down near New Kent County and some went to what became Arlington National Cemetery to the Custis state wow. to work along the Potomac. So no distilling there. Um, you know, there were a couple stills like any farm had, like you can see in the Custis estates, a couple of those farms in New Kent had stills, but they were probably 40 gallon stills, not 135 gallon stills like this place had. Right. So I think it's probably unlikely that they were able to carry on doing that. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've gone to a lot of places that have squared with the, the issue of enslaved people, but I think Washington's Mount Vernon and distillery that I've seen have done it the best. You still do the trade and honor what they did here. It's pretty cool. Well, well that's why we, if people ask why we use the term enslaved, not a slave. Because right. what we're trying to do with that term is recognize these were people, their humanity. They were in a, enslaved in a condition that was not their choice. It wasn't that use the term slave. And and Mount Vernon, I think, over the years has done pretty good at telling these stories. And it ever increases, you know, because we want to continue to develop our knowledge about those who worked here and made everything go. Right. And so luckily the records are pretty replete, Washington's record keeping and his farm managers. So we know the names of every enslaved person that worked here at different eras. And often we know the relationships and marriages because Washington did allow marriage between his slaves, which wasn't legally recognized, but he recognized it. Right. So you have these great you know, family stories that what, when visitors come here, whether you're on the estate in the mansion or down at our demonstrational farm or in the museum, that's part of the experience of learning about Mount Vernon and what went, went on on all these farms. Sure, sure. So I'm curious, there's not much record that I've seen of Washington enjoying whiskey. I know he's a big Madeira and wine guy. Right. Did he have any hand in the actual like taste testing and what would be the product that he liked or did he just defer all that and manage the business? There's nothing I've read thus far of him being down here tasting anything, you know. Um, the only written reference we know of Washington drinking whiskey is a letter from Henry Knox during the Whiskey Rebellion when he's talking about the president shall drink the drink that's famous in these parts oh, sure. as they're leading the army to Western PA. But when Washington passes away, there's a number of casts of whiskey in his cellar from his distillery. So there, I think there's no doubt he's sipping whiskey with friends in the mansion, sure. entertaining, because they had a lot of guests. There's also Madeira and wine, as you mentioned, and he loved porter beer. Mm -hmm. He really loved porter. So he imbibed in alcohol his whole life, but he also was a guy of moderation. And you can read about during the military years, you know, he knows the men need their drink, but he also cautions against certain things happening in camp. Right, right. But I think he certainly would have drank whiskey on occasion. It probably just wasn't his first love. Like Madeira, I think, and Porter was his first. Sure, sure. His, his preferable drink. I like to think that one of the things that connects Washington and Lincoln as commanders in chief, like, uh, the, the giving their men what they need. And what Lincoln was famous for doing was giving Grant more whiskey 
and then telling the other generals that, you know, maybe you should drink this whiskey too. <laughs> yeah, it may be apocryphal, but it's a funny story because Lincoln was very funny. They said, you know, people claiming he's a drunk. He goes, we'll find out what whiskey he drinks and <laughs> you should drink that as well. Yeah. You know, because if you know the history of Lincoln with generals, you know, he had a lot of, you know, with McClellan waiting and, right. you know, and then he finally got a guy that wanted to get in there and do it you know, pushed to end the war and Grant certainly did that. But yeah, Washington, I think would have partake, you know, on the road with the men. Sure. Sure. And I, and I know from one of the neatest stories, it's actually, uh, in Dennis Pogue wrote a book, uh, about this place and, and the whiskey in Washington. And it's a great account. I got to look the letter up again, but he said, uh, it was some, from somebody's diary or personal letter that had been at the mansion one night when Washington, it was a small group. He was comfortable. He knew everyone there. And this guy wrote that the general had a couple of glasses of champagne and told stories of the war. Oh, wow. Now, that would have been a night to be sitting in that small parlor. No kidding. Because I don't think he went there a lot, like a lot of veterans. You know, you could, some veterans will talk and, of course, think of all he witnessed. But he, he told some stories. So I think that in the right company, Washington, you know, had that side of him where he relaxed. Yeah. I'd be, to be a fly on that wall. Yeah. Well, that all those rooms up there, as you know, we know it's like to have been able to record, you know. Right. Some of the conversations would have been incredible. Sure. Um, I know you said earlier that they, they found barrels of whiskey from the original distillery. Is that still around? Is that a special? Oh, no. no, that was at the time of his death. So, so at the time of Washington's death, they did an inventory of the estate, gotcha. room by room. So like in his study, there's like seven swords and nine firearms. And you go downstairs to the cellar and there's butts of wine and there's Madeira barrels and Porter beer and other goods, you know, so all that was inventoried. And within that inventory, you can see right there are barrels of whiskey that came right out of this building. Did you know, is there any of the original bottles or whiskey that exist anywhere today? No, that long gone. And, and they didn't bottle back then, you know. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so it would have been a case of sending like Tierces or half cask or half cask, you know, maybe around, but all that's so long gone. Right. You know, wish, wish it was, but, you know, it may not be any good. You know, I, I had a, one time at a friend's house who collects some, he had a bottle of 45 year old bourbon and it's, he goes, you're not going to like it. No. Cause it was a wood bomb. Sure. You know, so it's all a lot of, you know, age doesn't mean always good as you know. Right. right. So, but it, you know, it's like, it'd be neat to even see an empty barrel would have been neat. Yeah. But yeah, it's just all faded into history. Sure. Um, what do you think he would think about all this today? Would he be proud? I think he would be proud that his legacy is being taught particularly probably more so for him on the public side of, you know, the constitution, sure. uh, winning the war and what that meant in that time period. We forget, you know, you study history. I don't know if you ever listened to, uh, now, uh, one of the Scottish historians I like to listen to, he just says, you know, we read history now and, and to us, we know the outcome. So it's a foregone conclusion <laughs> in your mind. Well, of course we want, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion. I think, He'd be happy to know that the nation carried on under the structure. Sure. And that it's being studied because it's important for each generation to learn about the country's founding and why the Constitution matters. And on the business side, I think he probably would think it was pretty neat that this place was rebuilt. Yeah. You know, that people could learn that part of Mount Vernon. I also think, though, he was such a stickler for detail. He'd probably walk in and go, well, that's not accurate. Oh, that's a little <laughs> off. You should, those stills look different. He would have been. But I think more so he'd have been happy that the lessons that he tried to live by and taught and that are important to the founding are still being related to new generations. Sure. Well, on that note, I think we should have some samples in his honor. That's a good idea. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're a whiskey guy. We talked a little earlier, and I know you love your scotch, but 
with our whiskeys, it's always good to start with the unaged rye. Yes. Because you want to get that baseline. So a lot of people wonder what it, you know, as you, it's, you're getting all the grain flavors. You're not getting any benefit of the, of the barrel. So with the rye, it's going to be, you know, spice, a little peppery up front. But this is about 35% corn. Okay. So it has a much sweeter finish than when people anticipate. So a lot of times at tastings, if they're, you know, people aren't used to rye, mm-hmm. they uh, kind of balk a little at that initial sip. Sure. Because they're all used to the sweetness of what we know as bourbon. Right. Poured you a big one. I'm sorry. No, that's that's not a not a problem. <laughs> and so with with that rye, I always get that that spice up front, both on the nose and and on the uh, on the palate. And there's also with this batch, what's interesting is I don't know if you, I get a weird like tequila note in this, which is just a feature of our rye. I was going to say because I've 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 been here before. I've had a whiskey before, and I've always known that the the unaged to be a very very different nose than anything I've ever had. Yeah. And then the taste doesn't exactly reflect that at all. No, no, it's but very it's different. very sweet. Yeah. And I, as far as an unaged whiskey, that's uh, and it's impressive. Cheers. Cheers, man. I appreciate this. And that's 43% ABV. Nice. And I think what we've gotten better at through the help of, as I said, our great consultants like uh, Lisa, who was here for years, and others that have worked with us, and Bill Hockett in recent years. It's very balanced. Very. Distillation. So, you know, we learned early on you know, through time, it's like when we had bad batches, we would back, what went wrong there? What did we do? And so we've gotten a lot better at making the cuts off the still and also just running our fermentation properly because, as I learned a long time ago, if the fermentation has a problem, the still is not going right. to fix it, nor will the barrel fix it. Right. You know, it'll come through. <laughs> so that's what we try to shoot for, even though each batch varies a little bit on the unaged. It's really very balanced and well-made, and the cuts are done right. Yeah, that's incredibly sweet and smooth for a rye. And a, a lot of times, and I, I've 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 kind of coached some of my friends and family who know I'm the whiskey guy, and they always ask about rye because rye to them, the uninitiated, that spice feels almost like more alcoholic. Yeah, it's more of a burn. Burn, yeah. Um, all the way down, they think it's right. Well, some rye, if they're 95, they're all they're, they're all yeah. They're, what I like stomach. about this one is uh, that corn kicks in mid palate. Right. It's it. Uh, just in the front, I have a lot of rye spice and, and allspice, and then as the corn takes over, it's like a sweet, caramel, almost brown sugary finish, and I, you would never know this is unaged. In a blind tasting for someone who wouldn't know, to me. Yeah. Well, Very the good. interesting thing at the tasting table, and we're doing tastings right now every Saturday in September, mm-hmm. and next year in 2024, we're going to do them in spring again in May and June, so people can come try it. Right. And, and, is that everybody's different you know there's no wrong answer some people i have people that like the unaged better than the aged whiskey and other people go i can't drink the unaged and they like that and i go that's fine Mm -hmm. you know uh everyone's palate's different everyone's likes are different so but the main thing for us here is if the unaged isn't good we're going to have problems two and four years down the road so we try to you know work real hard to get that base spirit right right Mm, that's a good point so i know you do a two-year and a four-year aging do you have any other experiments you've done from the ground up? Yeah, and and I thought about when you mentioned you enjoy scotch before we came, you know, on the mics here is that we did make single malt whiskey back in 2012. 
And wow. it was a special small batch for some fundraising. And so that was working with Dave Pickerel and Andy Cant from Cardew. And yep. uh, we had uh, John Campbell, who was then at Lafroy, now he's at Lochlea. And Bill Lumsden from Glenmorangie G was here. So that was a real great fun for us. That's cool. And so that was a special. We made rum once, yep. uh, which was a special thing for our fundraising department. We were releasing Washington's Barbados Diary. It's the only time he left North America. So that was a great project. And that was uh, Maggie Campbell, who was at Privateer Rum, then worked with us. And Lisa Wicker worked with us on that. Right. And then uh, we have older whiskeys now. So we've got some rye in the corner of this room that's six and a half years old. That's exciting. And we also have a double oak that's going to come out later this year, I hope. That's, you know, rye over four years old that got transferred into a used bourbon cask. Sure. I know there were rumors a while back that you were going to try to try to do a bourbon. Did that ever come to fruition? It did. It did. So right over there and in that same area, we have some of the bourbon casts. So that was done in 2018. Ah. And the reason, you know, it's not that we don't go out of the portfolio. I mean, we didn't have, they never made single malt here. They never made rum here. But the cool thing about the bourbon was in 1797, when they're distilling in the cooperage, there's a letter from James Anderson to Washington. And he says, I don't have enough rye. So I'm using corn and wheat tailings from the mill. So we did a weeded bourbon mash bill. So that's 70, 70, 20, 10 that's cool. on that. And then we, when we release that, we'll have that story to tell. Yeah. And it shows up in the farm report too. So you can see it in the letter and then there, there it is in the farm report. Wow. Are you aging for like four, four years? It's going to be five years old in December. It's probably going to go seven. Okay. Very cool. Probably going to go seven and it's, it's doing real well. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we think two more summers and we'll bottle it. I'll look out for that. I, I love bourbon. But as I said, I, that scotch, and I've gotten more into rye too, but I, I think scotch and rye have a lot more complexity than a bourbon. And bourbons are great, but sometimes that basic corn, vanilla, caramel sugars just kind of get boring. And you can only, only so many ways you can skin a cat. Scotch and, and rye, all those different levels of spice and with peat and scotch, and that, that that's a whole other world for me. Mm-hmm. So... That's so why I appreciate this is because this rye is so different and much more sweet than the traditional rye that exists out here in Virginia. We actually just had Catoctin Creek, great distillery, great tour. They're at 99 something percent rye and it's great, but it's spicy. It is spicy. And Becky Harris is a great friend and she's worked in here with us on a number of occasions. First time making brandy. Okay. And then she and her, some of her team have come and helped us at various times. So Becky, what's great for us is we got a lot of great people. She's a phone call away. And even recently, I messaged her about something. Very cool. So she's just great. And Scott, her husband's a great guy. So we're kind of Virginia allies in the <laughs> in the rye world, I suppose. But she's got a great crew up there, a lot of talented people. So some of those guys were down here in November last and in March helping us out. Very cool. I know she just won the Women in Whiskey Award. Yeah. Because she's one of the few women master distillers. She's very well-deserved. Yeah. There's, there's more out there like uh, they don't get the credit. Right. sometimes and that's starting to change which is good like you know pam heilman i got to meet once who was at michter's yeah for 20 years she's you know not the face of it but she was the run running things there and she retired a few years ago so yeah it's always neat to meet these ladies and and learn from them sure know? i mean there's so much knowledge out there so i think that part of the industry is growing and changing and there's a lot of talent out there and becky what's neat about becky other than talent is she's real close right you know, so, you know, i can bug her you know and occasionally i drive out to percival so for those of you listeners if you haven't tried catoctin creek you gotta go try it yeah yep yeah. i i'll be knocking on the doorstep soon I, I sent a message to becky a little while ago i was like hey i want to i want to talk to you be a good interview <laughs> yeah she's sharp 
And it's interesting because Scott's great too, but she's the chemical engineer. Ah. And so she's, and, and Scott's running all sorts of aspects of the business. That's cool. Yeah. So what do you have here? This is the two-year. This is the two-year-old. So the two-year-old rye, the straight rye ranges, depending on the barrels, between anywhere from two years on the nose to maybe two years, eight months. I think this batch is two years, seven months. Uh, we use Kelvin Cooperage usually, number three char. So there's a lot of, the spice really comes through with the other caramel notes and vanilla notes in this whiskey. But a lot of people that like spice love the two-year-old better than our premium because there's just more body there of the spice sure. at that age. As you know, ryes tend to do better younger mm. and oftentimes. So I think for a lot of people, like last weekend at tastings, the most that was liked was the two-year. And that's we sold the most bottles of that on Saturday. Interesting. I will say on the nose right away, it's much more brown sugary, mapley sweet than mm-hmm. I would. This feels like more of a bourbon on the nose. Mm-hmm. And cheers. I really get the sugar and vanilla. Yeah, and that's much more that that spice, like you said, is much more full body. Yeah. This is a this is a rye more so than the unaged. I think it's got a, a nice when you try the older whiskey. This just has a nice mouthfeel to yeah. it because of that spice. Mm-hmm. What's really crazy and on the unaged when it's running, it tastes best at 120, but we wouldn't want to bottle it. <laughs> and the sweetness comes through at 120 off the still. It's amazing how sure. how sweet you know it'll taste like a bourbon. Yeah, but you know our job is to run it. You know, keep running and collecting, but there's we joke around. We should bottle this right now, you know? but it's a small window at 120. You know, right, right. Going to get a lot of volume. Have you done a cast strength before? Uh, we are going to. Okay. Yeah, because uh, we have some of those ones over there that I just don't want to cut down. Yeah. They really taste so good, full bodied, and and so we also recently, I think this is this batch here too. We're tasting. Um. No, this is a chill-filtered one. This is one of our last chill-filtered ones. We've just recently gone up on proof to uh, 46.5%, so 93 proof. It's because we we're going away from chill-filtering, gotcha. which you can taste a flavor difference there with the chill filter. And it's it's logistically difficult for us with this building right? and where our grain freezer is to chill-filter. It's a long story, but mm-hmm. we've been doing that for years. It's like it's finally time, so we changed the label just in the last few months, and we like the taste quite yeah. a bit. Very cool. Now this is great. This is uh, it's it's very sweet still for on the forward on the front, but that that spice very much lingers in your in your mouth. Mm-hmm. I still have it. Yeah, and it's tantalizing. I love it. That's one neat thing about rye. Once people get past the initial, if they're drinking sweeter bourbons, is that it grows on you. you know, yeah, I, I, I didn't drink a lot of rye over the years, and then of course being here, you start thinking about that more. But um, I love varieties of ryes that are on the market today, and you know, from the, like you said, the ones Becky's making at high rye content all the way to what we're doing at 60%. This would be great in the Manhattan. I'm a big Manhattan fan. Big time. Um, oh, that's so good. What, out of the three that we have here, what's your favorite? Well, for a couple reasons, what we're going to have next is the favorite, and it's not because it's the oldest per se, but I think it, um, this is our very first ever five-year-old rye. Oh. You know, 2017, we released our first four years, like right on the nose, four years old. And then there was a few other batches, four years, two months, four years, five months, four years, six months. And then last year, it was four years, 10. And some of that's just the nature of us being so small and what retail needs. And I had to just pull those barrels. Sure. So this one, though, uh, 
his first five-year-old on the nose, and it's different cooperage. So this is Zach Cooperage, which uh, Lisa Wicker told us about Zach Cooperage. They used to have the Heaven Hill contract for many, many years. Yep. And they're doing a lot of craft barrels now. Mm -hmm. And so she said, you got to try them. So we have a handful of Zach barrels. And we still love Kelvin. That's our go-to mostly. But I think it just came out really nice in the Zach barrel. And and uh, what was weird is that three years, you know, if you do a barrel sample, some things taste really weird at different t travels during their Sure. time in the barrel and I was like oh that's kind of I don't like that <laughs> and I was even thinking last year am I gonna have to do something but then it just hit this spot the last year of its aging and it's just really really beautiful wow. plus it's non-chill filtered right so that that's I, I do like this for a lot of reasons I still like other age rise we do but I think this is a special one for us just because of all those reasons right I've only had the four-year um I think it was a four-year five-month batch that I've tried um so this is this is exciting I hope it stands up. I think it'll stand up. Oh. Different, isn't it? Very different. Very different. There's some kind of tobacco notes a little bit. I was going to leather. Leathery, yeah. You said these are number four charts? These are threes. threes. So always three, but it's just Kel not Kelvin, it's Zach Cooperage. So Zach is in Atherton,ville Kentucky, and they're a small family-run Cooperage. Okay. So it's, they're in an old Seagram's plant. Oh, wow. Really? And so, but the, it's really, uh, I've driven by, I've never toured it. I'd like to tour it one day, but, you know, it, it was neat to try. It's always good to try new things to nuance it. So, but I think this worked real well with this older rye for us. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. That's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and again, 93 proof. So I think again, you know, and again, 10 years ago, did I know some of these points? No, I've come a long way from learning from good people, you know, and I try to remember every time we're around some of these distillers or perhaps you feel this in things you do, you meet certain people, you realize how much you don't know. Right. And so that's still the case. I try to remind myself that, you know, you learn some things and then I try to pick up as much as I can, uh, knowing that there's always more to learn and there's always somebody out there that understands Cooperage better than I, but sure. we've come a long way with how we view Cooperage and, and how we pick barrels and, you know, maybe things we want to try. So, um, but if you've ever talked with somebody like I talked to one of the guys at, um, independent stave and he shows you the chemistry diagram on all their wood. And it's like, I'm a historian. I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know, but it's, I learn, but I, I don't understand all that they do. But in the end, if it's going to meet a profile we're ho shooting for, they're, they're great. And, and people love to help Mount Vernon. That's what's nice too. Yeah. You know, whether it's a cooperage or another distiller or, you know, people that do podcasts like you, this is a great story and people want to come help us out, which I always say Washington saves us every day. <laughs> I'll drink the <laughs> it, op it opens doors. <laughs> and and I think that's part of his legacy too, is people understand and they and they love coming here. Like this November we're gonna have a couple other distillers come that have been here once before and it's been a few years. So I love that part of it too, sharing it. And sure. but but certainly the Zach folks really helped us out. Yes, yeah, you know, think about how how all the variables that exist within different woods and different processes. That's that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this when I'm talking to you is I, I love this place and I love the history behind it. That's that's the that's the icing on the cake for nostalgia and, yeah. and, and learning, right? Right. But getting un underneath that and learning about the actual craft of the whiskey and that just the 
six more months of this has been aged with yeah. a different batch. Yeah. And it's all the world different. Yeah. I love it. So I, well, I appreciate you doing this with me. No, Steve. it's fun. It's always fun that, you know, cause the marriage of great spirits and good history is, you know, our wheelhouse, you know, among other wheelhouses here at Mount Vernon, because a million stories to tell. Yeah. So for, if you're a visitor out there, that's not a whiskey person, there's still a million stories of Mount Vernon to hear. Oh, absolutely. And so this is just a particularly unique one in that most people don't think of Washington as a businessman. They think of, you know, him as the general or, you know, the, to maybe the farmer. Some people may know he had a farm, but this aspect of Mount Vernon, this site particularly drives them to the entrepreneurial yeah. side of Washington. And it's a, it's a story that should be told because his heart was really on this estate, you know. But thankfully, he was willing to spend a lot of time away to do what the country needed. Right. So, but, uh, and of course, the Anderson story is neat too. James Anderson's quite a character. And I've done a little digging because after he left here about 1802, I want to find out what's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, because, yeah, you know, him and his son and his family moved, I think, down toward Williamsburg. And there are some inklings of it, but somewhere there's probably some records somewhere we can dig up. I'm going to keep looking for him because. He was a real American character, yeah. you know, Scottish descent that made an impact. Right. And I'm, sure, I'm sure he made whiskey somewhere. Yeah. Well, he made, before he came here, we didn't get into that. He built a distillery before he came here in Fredericksburg, and I've been working on researching that. I have a friend down there who's a retired librarian who's really good at all the records, and so sure. I want to learn more about that. Yeah. That'd be really cool. Yeah. Well, I what you're doing here is great. The story is, I mean, obviously, the drinking whiskey is the best part, um, but learning about the the ambiance while drinking the whiskey and what Washington did here is it's such a cool thing to keep alive. And yeah. I, I, re- I appreciate your work as a historian, but I also appreciate your, uh, your kinship here as a whiskey man. So I appreciate yeah. it. It's nice to drink together and talk and, uh, you know, you're a military guy too. So you're in the legacy of Washington serving. So we appreciate that. And tell your folks to come back, you know, tastings this month and tastings next spring. If people look at mountvernon.org, they can see the schedule for that and other events at Mount Vernon. Absolutely. Every season's different here. So it's worth coming any time of year, really. Awesome. Well, Steve, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers.